Hello and welcome back to the Family Law Podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. We've had a little mid-series break to recharge the batteries and renew our vigour and we're raring to go again. And I'm joined today by Leslie Samuels QC, fresh from his talk, which kickstarted the 2022 Resolution Annual Conference. This podcast will complement that talk rather than cover the same ground. And so we do recommend any listeners who are Resolution members to listen to that talk. It's genuinely fascinating. And the subject of choice for that talk and today is non-accidental head injuries in the context of care proceedings. Regular listeners and first-time listeners will both be familiar with Leslie Samuels QC, who is not only an eminent silk about whom the legal directories say the nicest of things, but also a Deputy High Court judge. Thank you for joining us today, Leslie. Mark, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. So um, I want to start with a kind of a practically led approach, because one of the things that you talked about in your talk was that in order to cross-examine a medical expert, you have to be conversant with the, the, the medical science itself. As, as, a, as a lawyer, obviously you're not medically trained. How on earth do you go about making sure that you have the requisite level of knowledge to properly challenge medical evidence? Well, Mark, one of the things I always come back to is what Joe Delahunty, Queen's Counsel, and Kate Perkis said in their article on the case of Alalas, which really for me just sums up exactly the situation we find ourselves in, uh, having to cross-examine experts in real time on our feet uh, without, as our criminal colleagues often do, having the benefit of our own expert behind us to be able to give us the information and understanding that we need. Um, so it is really difficult cross-examining an expert in the area of their own expertise. Uh, and what, what I do and, and what I think we all have to do in these situations is do our best to get to at least an understanding of what they say, if not an understanding of where the areas of challenge are likely to be. How to do that? Uh, well, it's a combination, really, of time and experience. Uh, of course, everybody has to do these cases for the first time, but it's unwise, perhaps, to do so in circumstances where you haven't at least been in a case where these sort of issues have arisen. Uh, and what's really necessary is, I think, firstly, an, an understanding of the research base, which requires reading the articles um, that the, the experts will be familiar with, uh, and also perhaps those that they may not necessarily agree with or may not be mainstream. So you get a sense of the academic debate. And it, it, that can be done in part through Google, although it, it's a rather expensive exercise. Anyone looking at my credit card bill will see various credit card items often to American companies going out for sort of 30 or 40 pounds a time, which um, could be very embarrassing if they didn't realise that it was actually research articles. Um, you end up having to spend some money sometimes, but also asking the experts themselves, please, please provide copies of any articles that you think are relevant, because that can be a good source of material. 
I think it's about reading books sometimes. There are a lot of books on head injuries, particularly try and understand the anatomy, which, which is complex and fascinating uh, and requires a degree of understanding. And then the other area of, of research is previous case law, because of course Bailey um, and now I think the National Archive are, are, are huge resources if we use them properly, because one of the things to try and avoid is the need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and a lot of these issues will have been litigated in, in cases that may not have made the headlines because they establish any new law, but the judge will have done their best to set out the um, evidential issues, the expert opinions that they've received. Uh, and, and to actually read those cases is very illustrative of, of the sort of uh, facts that, and understanding that a, a barrister is going to need in this situation. Um, and, and a good example of that is the, the Criminal Court of Appeal case of Harris that I mentioned in the, in the talk, because um, in that case, I think unusually, I'm not going to say uniquely, but unusually, the Court of Appeal had evidence. They really wanted to understand how non-accidental head injuries arise and what the range of debate is uh, about them. Uh, and what the possible medical causes are. So they heard all the experts, and it's all set out there. Mm. So one can read the, the various opinions, the ophthalmologists, um, the, uh, the uh, neurosurgeons, uh, the neuroradiologists. Um, they even um, brought in some uh, biomechanics uh, to try and understand you know, the, the mechanical situation of, of, of whether, for example, a shake cause a head injury. I think they'd rather wish they hadn't because, of course, as in many of these areas, they've got a number of competing views. So I, I think to get to that position where you stand up, and often it's, it's, you know, it's a 30, 40, 50 minute cross-examination, but the hours that it will have gone in to trying to understand the issues, to be able to ask uh, clear, focused questions and hopefully get the right answers. Um, just on the, on the anatomy, I have to say, when I was listening to your talk, I was sort of taken aback when you were giving this description of the, um, I think it was the dura in the skull and subdural hematoma. And, and, you know, these are words that I know from watching House or <laughs> ER, um, but, but it was like listening to a doctor. It's slightly intimidating that that's the level of knowledge that you really have to have. But I, I suppose, of course, you do if you're going to challenge them. Well, the other problem is that the terminology changes. At, well, it evolves, but it's also it's differently used. We all use different terminology in modern life um, for diff the same thing. We'll call we'll call something different names. That's what we do, and doctors do the same. But it can be really disorientating when you think you've understood something, and then somebody throws in a word that doesn't sound like something you've heard before. And again, it's just experience of being able to understand um, not only what they're saying, but then why they're saying it. When you're, when you're cross-examining, of course, one of the things that we all have to do is we have to put our case. Um, and sometimes that, that involves putting a set of facts or a certain, almost a certain opinion. Um, but of course, when you're dealing with an expert of this level do you is there a line that you can't cross is really what I'm asking when you when you cross-examine do you feel that you you can only push it so far I mean one of the things I I really emphasize is the importance of a case plan um, 
Uh, and um, it's one of the things that certainly I taught when, when I was teaching advocacy pre-COVID, and I think still still is, is part of the of the curriculum, is the idea of, of actually spending some time on your case plan, working out what facts are helpful, what facts are unhelpful, and, and how you move unhelpful material into a neutral or, or helpful column. Um, and so um, knowing not only what you want to achieve, but the limits of what you can achieve is incredibly important. Some experts, you know, you're not going to shift. So there's, there's really little point in, in cross-examining on the central issue because they're just going to repeat with ever greater emphasis what they've already said. Some may be shiftable, uh, uh, or at least to a degree. And so if you can achieve that, you know what you want to do and you know when to stop. Um, I mean, obviously, different judges will have different approaches, uh, and it's certainly sensible not to not to roam too far into the hypothetical yeah. and to try and ground your questions on the factual uh, information that you've got, rather than go off onto some different speculative route that isn't perhaps grounded in the evidence in case. Mm -hmm. Because I suppose it, it contrasts when you have, I mean, let's say in a financial remedy case, you might have a forensic accountant valuation of a business, but if there's a, a, enough money, you could go off and get your own shadow expert and effectively get the shadow expert to write half your cross-examination. There isn't that in care proceedings, is there? No, I mean, it, it can be hard enough to get the full range of experts. Um, certainly getting a, a second expert is, is increasingly difficult. It's not impossible, particularly where the expert opinion is um, on, a, on, on a central crucial issue. But that's not to say that you don't get some advantage from the range, because um, where you instruct, a, for example, a paediatrician, in a night an accidental head injury case, if they're experienced in that area of work, they will be able to give opinions on a range of issues that will overlap with the opinion from a neurologist or neurosurgeon, for example, which will overlap with a radiological opinion. And so there are areas that are discrete to each, but there are areas where you may get a different range of opinions. I, I want to come back to different experts in a moment, but just in terms of again dealing with the sort of cross-examination side of things you talk you mentioned in your talk about um there being established opinion sort of recognized opinion amongst the medical field that then has been discounted and that's been that you've moved on I mean, again as counsel as someone that's not a medical expert if you are if you are fighting against established medical opinion how do you go about displacing that established law l-o-r-e well it's it's yes it, it, it's it's never law um and um I, I, I mean certainly experts like peter richards who is now retired but a, a very eminent well-respected uh, neurosurgeon who's given evidence in a lot of these cases will say that that what they say isn't fact it's it's sometimes no better than informed guesswork. Uh, and we all have to recognise that, that they're doing their best. I mean, to give you a practical example, um, although I, I know that 
neuroradiologists or some neuroradiologists disagree. Uh, what they are looking at on the scans is not the same as what you see in real life. It, it's, it's different. It's, it's an image. It's not the real thing. Uh, and so it's important to recognise that even what they may say they see with their own eyes on a scan doesn't necessarily mean it's actually there or, or there exactly as they describe it. Um, equally, it's important to always to remember that, um, that the mistakes that have been made in the past were made with exactly the same confidence that experts, expert opinion is given today on, on different issues. Uh, and so there is always scope and good authority for this, that today's medical certainty may be undermined by new information tomorrow. We all have to be aware of that. So that's always a starting point with your expert in, in, to, to establish in case the judge not, and sometimes they're not experienced in this work, they understand that, that they are in the realms of, of opinion, not certainty. Mm. The, the other thing that when I looked at, at your question, it, it sort of brought to mind, which is slightly off centre, but I think equally important, is to remember what we do have in the toolbox, what our skills are. Because you mentioned, of course, right at the beginning that we're challenging experts in their own specialism and we're not equipped to do that. But what we are particularly good at, or at least can be, is minute analysis of detailed information and our ability to read carefully a huge volume of material and pick out often the one line in a thousand pages that is material is crucially important. If you know your notes, the medical notes, as well as or even possibly better than the expert does, you begin to gain some advantage. Uh, and you, you can use that because the medical opinion is only as good as the factual basis underlying it. So if you can challenge that factual basis, the medical opinion may change. So if it's assumed that a particular test result is X, but you can demonstrate it's Y, whether that's a scan or a blood test, if it's assumed that the child is normal uh, in, in terms of um, something like head circumference, which is often quite important in these cases, but you can establish an abnormality, if it's assumed that there is no genetic uh, background in relation to parents, but of course you've got the advantage of the parents. You've got your client, they haven't got that. You can talk to your client and if you get information, uh, and it happened very recently to me that, that, that getting my own client's medical records revealed matters of substance. I had that advantage if I was able to use it, which, which I was. So we, we've got advantages in these in, in cross-examination. We just have to recognise that and use them. Mm. Yes, well, the devil is always in the detail. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you mentioned a range of experts, and I just want to come on to that, um, because if we are looking at, again, from a sort of practical focus um, side of things, how many experts are we looking at in a, a non-accidental head injury case? Well, it depends. It depends to the extent to which there are associated uh, injuries. So um, 
almost always there will be a neuroradiologist, uh, there will be a neurosurgeon, there will be a paediatrician. Uh, depending on the age of the child, there may be a neonatologist as well as or instead of a paediatrician. Um, and then if there are other fractures, there may be a radiologist. Um, there may, if there's eye injury, there may be an ophthalmologist. Um, obviously, if the child died, then you get a range of pathology opinion. Um, so it, it, it can vary anywhere between as an absolute minimum three to, to off, often heading towards double figures sometimes. And you talk um, in, in, in the, the resolution talk about um, expert meetings and how they, they can't be used to get the story straight between the experts, basically. Uh, I suppose with if you're into double figures, there's got to be a real risk of a divergence of opinion. Um, do, do you know, one of the things that struck me was the possibility that expert meetings could um, be used to explore the differences. Uh, and indeed, if, if conducted, perhaps in, ideally, experts would have the freedom to do that. I, I think possibly because, of course, their background is, is as treating clinicians. The, the opposite tends to happen in that they try and reach consensus. And that, of course, is essential when you're looking at a treatment plan. You can't come out of a meeting of treating clinicians to discuss what to do in relation to an unwell child uh, and have them saying different things. They need to reach a view uh, based on their combined expertise. I think the problem, of course, in a, in a case is that, it, that that's not ne necessary or all part of their function. Uh, but so often, and, and it, it's probably just me, but I think one or two others just get, I can feel my shoulders going back uh, when I'm either, and often it's reading or sometimes watching or listening to these experts meetings and you see them desperately trying to reach balance of probability conclusions. Um, some of them put them in reports and some of them, you know, you can point out in cross-examination four or five times the expert has, has referred to something on the balance of probabilities. And that seems to me to trespass into the judge's function rather than their own. The judge has to reach a balance of probability conclusion, but their, um, their role is to give the differential range. And that can include, as you say, a, a difference of opinion. Um, I, I feel much happier where there has been a proper exploration of the difference of opinion, if only to reach the view that that actually there isn't a difference of opinion or, or that one expert says, no, having reviewed it, I'm in agreement with you. But um, well, as I say, what often one sees is a push for consensus, which, which tends to stifle debate. I guess they're used to being the decision makers effectively, but actually in this situation, they're, they're having to put the decision before the court and just give their opinion neutrally. Yes, well, it's, it's not a decision. That's, that's the point. Well, it's, it's, exactly. it's, their, it's their views and it's their opinion. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a very, of course, it's a very soft line uh, and, and there, are, there are gradations. But um, I think more helpful to the judge is, is to look at things differentially. And, I mean, talking of experts, especially if you're going into double figures, is there any... Are there any tips that you can give in terms of how to choose the right expert or are we limited by who's available? 
well, we're hugely and increasingly limited. Um, the, the family justice system has had a number of blows over the years. Um, and one of the more, most serious was the, the capping of experts' fees and the control that is exercised by the legal aid agency, not just in the hourly rate, but in the number of hours that are spent. And that has pushed a number of experts out of the system. Initially it did, with, with some just saying they weren't prepared to work at those rates. And then gradually over the years, as experts retire and, and are not replaced. I, I know there's a huge push um, and a welcome push uh, led by Mr Justice Williams to uh, bring more experts in. And, and, and I know that a number of agencies, the bar included, is trying to help as best we can to try to give those experts an understanding of an experience of the family justice system uh, and certainly a, a push to, to try and restrict criticism of them. But nonetheless, the, the, the end result has been, certainly at the moment, there's a limited range and, and they were certainly within particular timescales. It can be very difficult to get an expert. So you may be, you may be limited by that. Um, but broadly, one sees similar experts, or the same experts time and time again. So, so one will know where their expertise lies. Um, and it's just, it's often important to get a range of views and to recognise that. One may get, one will know that the particular expert has a view about a particular issue and another expert has a different view on that same issue. Do you think, um, do you think it is a purely financial consideration in terms of availability of experts? Or is it, like you say, a, a fear of, of being criticised and that judgment possibly being published? I think it's both. Um, I, I, I think those experts who are committed to undertaking this work do so out of in, in largely a sense of responsibility and duty. Uh, there is no more important work, um, obviously aside from treating children, but but the the decisions that courts make are, are lifelong, and so and so those experts who become involved in in giving expert evidence do so out of that sense of duty and responsibility but then to find uh and they as they see it they're unfairly criticized and publicly criticized makes things difficult for them like one can see the really difficult balance sometimes in those, these cases um so i think it's a combination of both really well, i won't ask you about anonymity of experts and proceedings because i think that's a whole separate mm -hmm. podcast and um, what i will ask you for is is Tips, tips from well, you 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 sit and obviously um, do these as a as, as a practicing barrister as well. NAI cases generally, um, they are not routine. How, have you got any tips for the listeners of how to best how best to run them? Do you do you have a separate fact finding hearing? Is it just rolled up welfare exercise? Well, on, on that specific point. Um, Clearly, there, there can be a range of views and situations, but um, very often these are single-issue cases. The, uh, either a, a, a uh, really quite significant and sometimes catastrophic injury uh, has been inflicted on a small <laughs> defenceless child um, in circumstances which uh, can range, obviously, from a momentary loss of control in an otherwise caring parent to something more significant. So on the one hand, there is an inflicted injury. But on, on the other hand, there are situations where the local authority just doesn't establish 
the facts it seeks to prove. And in those cases, the children go home. So um, they are the, the really classic single issue cases that do benefit from a, a fact-finding um, hearing. The other point, which, which I think is probably less emphasized, but I still think is important, is the opportunity to reflect from the non-perpetrating parent. I, I think it's really difficult for somebody, whether it's a mother or a father, who's who's not in the firing line, so a, a child who collapses in the care of the other parent, uh, to immediately and necessarily accept the fact that other parent has injured their child. Um, if we think about our own lives, how, how willing would we, we be to accept that our partner with whom we've had an established and loving relationship and have never seen them behave in any way wrongly towards our, our child has in some momentary change of personality inflicted harm upon them. It would be difficult to understand and therefore to have a combined fact find and welfare hearing may be unfair to the non-perpetrating parent who needs that time to reflect if findings are made, then of course that is now established fact. Uh, and, and the question is whether the parent can accept that. But to ask them in advance of a finding, well, if the judge makes this finding, would you readily accept it, is really a very difficult question to answer honestly. And I suppose it's hard from the local authorities' perspective because you've got sort of alternate care plans depending on outcomes. And like you say, the, the parent that's not in the firing line, maybe, you know, if they if they deny the finding, then they don't have the insight and can't be relied upon. But if they accept the finding, then maybe they're a suitable parent. Yeah, and, and findings are nuanced. They're, they're, never, they're never simple. And, and findings sort can evolve in the course of these hearings. For example, the question of failure to protect may, may evolve during the course of a, of a case. And so it can be very difficult for a local authority to formulate a final care plan. So I, I think probably of all the cases that at least merit consideration of a separate fact-finding hearing, these cases do. I think the other point, and perhaps the most significant one to emphasise, is, is to ask yourself the question, um, at what stage will your client be best served by bringing in expert help, and in other words, a senior barrister? Um, and if the answer is as soon as possible, what impact delay of bringing that person in will have upon the client and the way the case is run. Um, there's nothing that, that we as, as um, senior barristers can do about decisions that have already been made that we've had no input into. Uh, and, so, and so bringing us in early is, is often beneficial. Uh, and I would hope um, that, that solicitors and, and obviously more junior barristers will, will give consideration to that. Just sometimes one feels like there's a sense of bravado, um, which is that, you know, I, I don't know what I don't know, and therefore I think I can do it. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's worrying, really. Uh, I've never done a head injury case before, but how difficult can it be? I'll read the reports and I'll, and I'll cross-examine the experts. And, and um, yeah, uh, that, 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 that can lead to a worrying situation. So I think bringing in expert help quickly, uh, the disclosure issues are of critical importance. You, you, you can't do the detailed preparation of reading medical records that you haven't got. 
And so a proper trawl and analysis of what there is. And the same, of course, with police disclosure, which can take a while to come through. So, so gathering together the evidential pieces is, is very important. Uh, the, the other thing is, is a detailed history from your client, uh, of your representative parents, and, and not readily discounting what they may say. Um, you, you'll sometimes pick up something that they will give um, that may have, may have been discounted by others, but, but actually may have some relevance. Um, I, I mean, one that, that I, I think I point to uh, in the talk is, is, and it's just an example, um, is the question of excessive winding. Um, and I think it comes really from... Um, in my mind at least, the very earliest of articles. Um, there's an article by an author, an American author called Kathy, um, back I think in the 50s, when, when he, 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 I think first really to identify what was then known as shaken baby syndrome. Um, and, and he uh, identifies uh, a particular situation where a, um, a, a nurse, uh, a, a children's nurse, um, a childminder, um, had uh, um, killed a number of babies in her care. Uh, and um, the families just didn't see it at the time. And so she would move from family to family. And it was only at some point in time that, that the links were made with all these dead and injured children. Uh, and the explanation she, she gave was that she was only trying to bring up the wind. Uh, and um, the, the, the author of the article describes I think, her being 14 times the size of the baby that she was winding. And imagine if we were picked up and forcibly winded by, by somebody 14 times our size, you know, it would be a pretty traumatic experience. And, yeah. and, so, and so, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, the, the, the really minute detail of looking at if it's a fall, you know, how did it happen? Trying to understand how a fall might have given rise to the injuries, if it's winding, if it's, if it's some accident in a car, you know, something like that, you know, understanding all these explanations and trying to see whether there's something there. Well, thank you, Leslie. I think that was that was comprehensive. Um, <laughs> and I think it probably probably about wraps things up. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you for your, your expertise as always. Mark, uh, as, as always, as I say, a pleasure. And, and thank you for running these. These are just excellent set of podcasts. Uh, and um, I enjoy listening to them. Probably not to this one, uh, but I, <laughs> most, I enjoy listening to the others. Well, thank you. We're lucky to have you. And um, to the listeners, we will continue to bring you topical podcasts for the remainder of this second half of series five and we hope you continue to tune in as ever if you have any queries or suggestions please do send them our way tara and my email is on the website um, and we're we're always open to suggestions thank you for listening and goodbye mm-hmm.